Welcome to the ATI Talking Water Quality Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lyle King, a water specialist and business manager at CM Industrial. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Gary Tabor, Executive Director of ATI UK. Morning, Gary. Good morning, Lyle. Great to be here. How are you doing? Doing very well, thank you very much. Good, good. So uh, today we're speaking with Adam Simpson of Safe Group Automation in Australia. Mm-hmm. And if I'm right, we're having a little bit of a twist on our usual theme today. But what are we talking about in particular? Well, we are. But a lot of the talks that we've had, discussions we've had, have taken the place around the topic of clean water. Um, but clean water is not the only thing. We uh, you have wastewater as well. So Adam's going to be talking about how that side of the business is changing and now that's becoming more smart as well particularly the management of sewers there's a lot of headlines not particularly positive headlines about sewers incidents and things like that so how we manage sewers now smart water can be involved in that but i think the other thing that adam is going to be talking about is the role of the systems integrator which is what safe group is Um, deploying smart water is quite an involved thing and so you need to be working with good partners. The Safe Group are that type of partner. You know, they're involved in actually integrating the products, collecting that data, presenting it in such a way that a water company can use it in a proper way. Perfect. Well, uh, yeah, again, it's uh, another one that I'm really looking forward to. So uh, let's make a, a start. So uh, first of all, morning, Gary. Good to, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. And uh, welcome to Adam, joining us all the way from what sounds like a lockdown Australia. How are, how are you doing, Adam? Yeah, yeah, good, good. In good spirits. We're, um, we're fine this thing. Hopefully we'll be out soon. So looking good. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So today then, the, the, the talking points from, from right, you know, I suppose throughout this series so far, Gary, we've talked a lot about clean water, we've talked a lot about drinking water. The, f- the focus for today is much more on the, on the wastewater side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose just before we do jump into that, Adam, could you give our listeners a little bit more of an intro and, into you and, and your background and, and how you really got involved on the, uh, on the water side? Yeah, so I started out many, many years ago as a plumber and then uh, worked for Veolia in Australia in their water operations. So two of their uh, water treatment plants, one in uh, southern Sydney called Warrenora Dam, and then I also worked on the uh, Sydney desalination project with, with, with Veolia. And that's really sort of kicked off my water operations journey. And then I transitioned into uh, engineering sales. And then from there, sort of with a heavy focus on, I mean, process, uh, lab and field instrumentation, and then and the more recent times, since about 2016, in this the smart water segment, where I really got my um, hands involved with uh, measuring chlorine in water reticulation networks uh, with battery-powered uh, devices, sending information back to, to the cloud. And then uh, now, sort of in recent, sort of past 24 months, uh, working with an automation company to integrate this data into people's SCADA systems, historians, BI. So it's really taking that that digital water journey now in integrating, I mean, the, the, the chlorine data is great, but it's really that they want this information in one central location where they can manage it. So that's been my digital journey so far. Perfect. Sounds, um, well, obviously really well in line with what Gary and I have been discussing over what is now a four or five part series. Um, so 
I suppose to, to, to jump straight into it then, like I said, the, the, the focal point for today is wastewater and how wastewater networks are becoming smarter. You know, like I say, Gary and I have, have talked quite extensively about how the clean water and how the drinking water networks are becoming smarter and, and different technologies that we can use there. Um, so what or why would you say then that, that wastewater perhaps lags behind, I suppose, as a starting point? You know, why is it that drinking water has been first? The perception is it lags behind, but in reality, it, it's, it's really not. Um, I think it lags behind because it, it always is. It's wastewater. So it always feels like it's the second cousin because we always think of water being, you know, vital for life and health and everything else. So it always gets the focus, you know, fresh tap drinking water gets the focus. When we flush that toilet, we, we tend to forget about it. It doesn't do anything. So the perception is that it's, you know, it takes second place. But in fact, in reality, I think that a lot of water companies, certainly in the UK, and I'd like to know Adam's opinion over, over in Oz, but certainly in the UK, it's uh, the infrastructure the infrastructure we've seen this sort of like large as we've discussed before this large explosion in population uh, and density and and our our wastewater system not dissimilar to our drinking water system is quite old in, mo in many cases most of our big cities it's victorian and it can't cope with the sort of like expansion in population and a flow to get that through to the works to be treated but the other thing that thinks happened is climate change and climate change has, has meant that more flash flooding um, if you think about stormwater stormwater finishes up in the sewer as well it's not exclusively the sewer isn't exclusively for waste but stormwater finishes up in there and, and higher rainfalls mean that we're getting more and more sewer flooding and that's becoming quite an, that's having quite an environmental impact and the minute that happens of course, we get very sensitive about the environment, and so therefore the focus shifts quite quickly to how we control better and stop incidents in wastewater. I don't know if it's the same for you and Adam in, in Australia, but certainly in the UK. Yeah, well, the regulators in Australia really do keep a, a close eye on, on what's happening regarding discharges and other bits and pieces as well. So, um, yeah, like you said, the, the, the second cousin is certainly now... Um, getting a lot of attention and you know in the recent sort of last few years that we're seeing a lot of infrastructure being rolled out into sewer networks um to, to, to monitor them and there's also yeah i mean the impact of climate change we get you know, I mean some pretty severe droughts we also get some uh significant weather events now so you know I mean, we've seen a lot of flooding of the mid north coast of, of new south wales earlier this year and once again it wiped out a lot of um you know, sewer treatment infrastructure and networks and the like. So there's a real need to, to be able to monitor this. And because of, you know, I mean, the variability of the climate, that, um, yeah, having an understanding of what's going to happen in the network is, is they, they really need to think about it now. So what are, the, what are the key sort of areas that people are monitoring in sewers? What, what, is it just level and flow or is it, is it more than that? It's been more level um, with um, some areas being having a flow input as well. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we're starting to see things like just the float switch being installed and it alarming uh, on exceedance and letting the, the utility know that they've got a problem in this part of the network. There's been some um, 
work done around sewage pump stations and looking at their diurnal trends and looking at, I mean, if there's been exceedances in those behaviours that can alert to alarms that there could be a pump that's going to fail, there could be a ragging event, there could be tree roots, there could be all sorts of things that are, that are causing blockages. So, yeah, there is. And data mining the existing skater systems and historians for this, this data as well is, I mean, it's sitting there, but they haven't really uncovered it. So that's what you know, our company, Safe Group Automations, is put some tools together to help look at that historical data and then start doing some data mining around your existing SCADA history to, to, to give you some insights. And what about things like, because of the, 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 the sort of like the increased flash flooding and things like that, what about the sort of impact that sewage has hitting that plant, the loading on the plant, and, and no, you know, an activated sludge plant. We know you you hit it with too much, and you're going to kill it. You're going to knock it over. Yeah, there is times that they, they have these events. They've got to reseed plants. Yeah, there are people that are trying to use whether they've got diversion systems to be able to divert um, rainwater events into into a pond to, to treat at a later stage. So, yeah, particularly councils or utilities that have got have significant weather events on the coast, will have the infrastructure put in place to manage that. But there are you get these freak occurrences and weather events and they don't get up for it. Yeah, because what we're seeing in the UK is that uh, there's, there's a lot of talk about actually using the physical asset of the sewer itself to, to sort of like hold that capacity and manage that capacity into the plant. Is that a similar sort of thing? Is there talk like that in, in, in for you? Um, I don't know. I mean, personally, but I do believe we have got engineered systems that would have the capacity to be able to, to hold that in the in the sewer network. But as as we sort of we dig into this subject, we'll probably find out that there will be projects like that are using pump stations to to hold back uh, flow to basically. You know, give the input into the plant that's that's not going to um, overload its capacity. Mm. I mean, that's what I mean. One of the sub subjects we wanted to talk about was septicity, um, because once you start using the uh, the asset itself to actually hold hold back everything and then bleed it in slowly to to, to make sure you don't knock everything out at the at the treatment plant. Um, obviously, places like Australia with the temperature and everything else, septicity becomes an issue. Are you are you finding that? Yeah, so I've got, I have reached out recently to a few of the utilities that I know fairly well, and you know that whole um, issue is certainly there. Um, we've we've got in Australia large areas of infrastructure, but small populations. So sure. even even the the sewer network, you know, I mean that being pumped and running through extended period of pieces of infrastructure, that it does become septic, and that's just due to the fact that we've got a small population but a large um, pipe network that we've got to try and look after and, and keep. So um, the dosing of chemicals like ferric salts or magnesium hydroxide um, is to try and aid and you know, I mean, remove the, 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 the sort of odour component. But, yeah, it's definitely an, an issue within our, um, our utilities in Australia. You mentioned the salts there, Adam. Are they more sort of reactive ways to deal with septicity or are they more proactive? Um, it's a bit of a bit of both. Sometimes they're just they're dosing the chemical in there just to make sure that 
they don't get any issues with corrosion H2S, um, or there's yummy times where they've, they've got the issues and they're going to do some dosing just based on historical you know, I mean, issues and events. So, um, But it's not really, I, I think, you know, I mean, well controlled at the moment from uh, using you know, instrumentation to really you know, I mean, make an advanced improvement in, in how, you, how you can sort of control those environments. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, Lyle, that's very much what's happened in the UK in the past. And it's no one's fault. It's just how you deal with the issue, the, the sort of dosing of these uh, oxide chemicals, oxidant chemicals uh, to control septicity has been basically it, it's been contracted out to the, uh, the companies that supply them. And therefore, what you get over a period of time is that uh, the companies are more interested in the chemicals. And so it's fed on a it's just fed on a flow proportional basis, not, as Adam says, it's not fed against what's actually happening. So there's no, there's no analysis being taken of what's going on. And so it's being fed to manage it. It's just being fed as it's flowing down there. So you're using up millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of chemical. Uh, You won't get a septicity issue, but you could say, well, that isn't really the way to manage a situation effectively. And so what people are looking at, I mean, don't want to turn this into an advert, but what we're actually looking at developing is, you know, uh, a system that can actually measure what is actually going on and then put that into a, a feed control. So you're actually flowing, controlling that proportionally to your needs. So you optimize the amount of chemical you use. So you're not using too much. You're just using the right amount and you can see what's going on. The technical challenges to overcome when you're dealing with sort of the if it's something that obviously can corrode a pipeline, for example, are there challenges that would then be similar for like a sensor, for example, in the way that that's managed? Uh, yeah, there's very real challenges when it comes to wastewater. <laughs> uh, sticking a, a sensor inside a sewer seems very simple. Uh, it isn't. It isn't simple at all. Uh, and uh, one of the things that water utilities have to understand is what well, they know. They know. Uh, in human waste, there's a lot of fat. That's one thing. There's just fat. Uh, and fat is, is really difficult to manage. Uh, you stick a sensor into a wastewater treatment plant and it's going to get down dirty. It's fouled. It is going to get fouled. And so any, anybody looking to embark in this has, you know, if, they, if that's what they want, they have to be acutely aware that you also have to manage the sensors. There is a, there's a degree of maintenance. So any solution you put in, you've got to think very, very carefully about uptime. You do not want armies of people running around, cleaning things off, wiping their bottoms, basically, making sure it's all clean. So cleaning regimes and having things that work in harsh environments, yeah, it's a very, very real problem. To, um, to take it back to one of the earlier points about overflow, what's the sort of best current way that, Stormwater overflows are managed, you know, when they are going into these sort of wastewater sewer networks. Well, they're managed as CSOs, which is basically, you know, to, to actually contain that that heavy flow and to let it bleed in. And the other thing is that you get stormwater tanks when you get near the works. What, as Adam said before, what will happen is they'll divert the flow. If it's too much flow for that plant to deal with, they'll divert the flow. Now, that that's a critical aspect to consider, really, because you can only divert the flow so much. 
building a wastewater treatment works is a huge undertaking. It's a massive cost investment and people really don't like wastewater treatment plants where they live. So that's a, that's a huge problem. You've, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you, you know what, expand the water plant continuously, but how do you deal with it? And that's why smart, smart measurements are going to, you know, be more prevalent. They're going to have to be, you've got to, we've got to design systems that can better cope with it. Um, so we don't have sewage incidents everywhere and massive great big works. If you think of Thames Water, for example, Thames Water in the UK, classic example, west coast to east coast or west side to east side. They built the Tideway Tunnel underneath, underneath London, 20 odd miles long to take waste treatment from the west side of London to the east side. Why? Because the west side, a lot of very expensive housing, not a lot of room there to build new water treatment plants, but you've got an exploding population. So what they wanted to do is move it from that side to the east side, where they've got huge, two huge wastewater treatment plants right on the Thames estuary. So that's how they dealt with it. That's how they dealt with it. And that was the biggest uh, civil engineering project in Europe. I suppose then to, to ask a, it's like a follow-on question from that, would the incorporation of a smarter wastewater network, so to speak, uh, holistic, you know, more of a holistic level, would that outweigh the need to invest in more infrastructure? You know, if you manage that better with, you mentioned about being able to hold it in a network, for example. Adam? Well, I think you, you would get capacity if you could use the, um, the existing network and the pumping infrastructure to your advantage. And you know, I mean, having the uh, enough sensor information to, to give you a, a clear understanding of what the capacity of your sewer reticulation network was, and yeah, definitely that could save on plant expansions or, or you know, I mean, building new plants. You're using existing infrastructure. To a term that we hear in Australia a lot, which is was coined out of the, the UK, was sweating the asset. So obviously, this is just another way to sweat the asset, as they say. Yeah, you can uh, you could you could basically use this in the shorter term until things get to another level. You again, exactly right. You sweat the asset. But the other thing to re to remember in terms of smart water is that people talk about when they talk about smart water, they talk about digital twins. Digital twins. So what you get is you get two two versions of what's going on. The real version. And then parallel to that, you get something you can simulate what's going on. Now, this is where in wastewater, a digital twin works perfectly because you can create scenarios. You can create flooding. You can create sewer blockages. You can create things going on there, overflows and everything else. And you can actually simulate it and actually see it. So really, wastewater lends itself very, very nicely to the digital twin aspect of smart water. What are... Adam, I'll ask this to you, obviously. Um, what's the main challenge to a utility when they're looking at a smarter wastewater network? What are the main things that they are looking for from, from you in particular? Yeah, well, I think the challenge, and I suppose one big thing, like I said before, in Australia is just the geography of our networks and how large they are. And then you know, the capex of installing your digital sensors throughout the network uh, versus, you know, I mean, information return, what you're going to get, 
I know uh, there's a large utility in Australia that's got 800,000 sewer manholes in their reticulation network. Uh, they're rolling out a project to monitor 10%, so 80,000 manholes for this one utility. And it just comes down to um, you know, costs as well. Yeah, I mean, if it, you know, $1,000, $2,000 per point to, to monitor a site, yeah, I mean, if you're talking 800,000 manholes, that's a, that's, a, that's a number. So I think network geography, uh, I think there's a lot of utilities that we have in Australia that they've got a large network but a very small uh, ratepayer base that uh, they've got to get the funding gradually or from the, the state government to, um, to help drive these projects. So, I mean, that, that having that money available to roll these out and then also the resource to, um, to look at that data and, and, to, and to interpolate that data and make then get the insights out of that data. You mean, you've got a lot of smaller utilities yeah, when you get away from the coast that, you know, I mean, they just don't have the resource. So have, having a system that is autonomous as well, has some AI that you don't have two or three or four or five engineers looking at this data all the time. You've got some intelligence around there as well. What about things like um, comms for you, Adam? I mean, you know, obviously the UK is a small footprint. We've got lots and lots of well-established stuff. I mean, things like cellular. Is, which way, because you're an integrator, you work, you know, for an integrator yep. as well. How, yep. how can you see that evolving? Because early on in our journey, that you and I have been on. There's lots of talk about MBIOT, LoRaN, yeah. everything else. What do you see? Do you see a predominant means of transmitting all this information coming through? Is it going to be cellular going forward? Do you think? I honestly think that um, yeah, we're the, they're rolling out the the Cat M1 MBIOT networks throughout Australia with the large with the our telco providers. I think cost per point satellite is going to emerge yep. in the, the, the medium to longer term future with the amount of satellites that talking about putting up for internet coverage and and connectivity that we might find that satellite might be the way to go we've got existing radio networks that we use for our, our telemetry systems but um and we are seeing you know in LoRaWAN we're seeing other communication um protocols and platforms out there but i honestly personally believe hand and heart that satellite will get to a price point where you don't have to worry about cellular networks anymore it'll it'll be it'll be cost effective to do it by satellite and that will remove a lot of obstacles in rural regional australia yeah i'm i yeah i was uh, i was at uh three days last week talking about this and uh one of the things i i hadn't thought about it before but with all the sort of law around mbiot and everything else and someone said yeah but the thing is these are critical infrastructure and uh nowadays there's so much critical infrastructure that's gone cellular um so in in a national disaster the first thing that's going to get rebuilt will be a cellular network it might take a little bit longer to actually put back together a different type of network and as you say if you stick it on a satellite well there's less chance of being interrupted by a natural disaster <laughs> that's exactly right so yeah and that's where and we'll even find that a lot of sensors will have their own embedded uh cellular uh, i mean satellite or cellular modem where um yeah this, the, the sensor technology is going to really change over the next decade i believe on, on the way we do things and the way 
we're measuring things and but it'll be the communications platform that's what we've always chased like going through the whole 2g network shutdown in australia there was hundreds of pressure loggers data loggers and let alone people's alarm systems and fpos machines that all had to be changed out because of a shutdown we're now going to have 3g turned off in australia by 2024 so there's a number of i know probably three of three odd hundred you know water quality monitoring devices that are out there at the moment the chloroplam that are on 3G, they'll need to be upgraded to, to uh, MBIOT. So we need to get some sort of platform that is going to have, you know, I mean, one for a better word, the test of time. But, you know, I mean, sensors do have a, you know, a lifespan like most uh, analytics do. So, you know, I mean, I think getting that comms platform right for the next sort of 10 or 15 years, I think we need the industry needs a bit of surety around that too. People talk about 5G, but yeah, I mean, we're not going to be watching Netflix and a chlorine monitor or a sewer monitor. <laughs> no, we're not. But that, that also brings, because you and I have talked about the rollout of smart water and things that are happening with regulators and things, and it's becoming, it's inevitability. It's inevitability. We know it's coming. It's, uh, it's happening. So what about the business model? Because I know you and I have got very similar views on that. The cost of actually rolling this out isn't insignificant, is it? So do, do you see that there could be a new business model, whereas we, we shift from a more like purchase, capital purchase for assets to a more sort of model where it's a service-based model? A bit like the mobile phone system where you buy something, well, you don't buy the asset, but you're buying the data. What's your views yeah. on that? Yeah, I think that is definitely, you know, I mean, the, the data as a service, the, you know, I mean, the device as a service that you don't really want to, why do utilities want to own some of these type of assets when they are not cheap to roll out and you want to go and deploy en masse that owning that asset may not be the best thing. You might just say, Mr. Service Provider, I want to monitor X, Y and Z points and I want to put 200 in the network and what we'll do is we'll give you a, a fee per month that we'll, um, we'll charge you for that. And we'll maintain the devices. We'll make sure the data goes into wherever you need to be to, to visualise. And we'll have a team that supports that. And I, I strongly believe that looking at traditional assets that you bolt on the wall, like a chlorine analyzer or a turbidity meter, yeah, they're going to be around at a water filtration plant, but not when you're putting them out in the reticulation network. And they might need to change. They might want to do what we call lift and shift. Um, understanding of the network or they want to have fixed point assets. So I do believe that this lease slash hire, whatever you want to sort of vehicle you want to call it from a finance perspective, um, yeah, I, I believe there will be a marketplace for it. There's the fact that, I mean, the customer wants the data that they need the physical asset. And do you think that's probably the biggest hurdle at the moment when you're speaking to people, when I speak to people, I don't think there's an appetite. People want smart water. They want digitalization. But the water companies are struggling with coming to terms with, you know, a truly smart water company, the cost of putting it out there. And so we as supply chain have got to be a bit more collaborative about bringing that to people and saying, and this is the cost effective way of doing it. Do you, I mean, is that starting to happen for you? The converse, conversations have happened, but it's it's also, yeah, I mean, we're talking government agencies here. We're talking a lot of, um, there needs to be a bit of a mindset change in the way, I mean, 
people purchase or I mean utilize this equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's it's the narrative will have to change in the near future. But I think people understanding and the, the newer engineers that are coming through and you know, I mean the accountants and you know in operations people that are that are running these things will understand that whole mobile phone type of purchase plan and you know, when you're really buying the data and that will, those those walls will come down and hopefully that's sooner rather than later that you know, when we look at you know, being able to offer these technologies and it may not be just one vendor it could be a suite of vendors and it could be someone like a systems integrator that does this type of work that correct we're not we, we don't work for, you know, I mean, the manufacturer. We we work for the end user and provide the solution. And it might be X, Y, Z sensors from this company. It could be a flow meter from that company. It could be something from another organisation that we bring that collaborative package together and give the finance model around that as well and just say, okay, you want to monitor X amount of points? That's going to cost you this per month, but we'll maintain it for you as well. see that you know in the instrumentation market and you've got a lot of experience you've worked with major corporates in the past the business model of just shifting a box is an old model and we're going to move to a more broken down localized service-based business so if someone buys they want data as you said you've got to maintain it so there's going to be more specialized service providers that can install the equipment integrate the equipment and then actually go on a regular basis and actually maintain it? Do you, I mean, is that something else you see? Well, when I, I worked for um, Evoqua, and they've got two businesses, essentially. One is a, a service-orientated business, and they had 3,000 service techs in the US running around the country looking after all manner of different water technologies. And then they had their, you know, in, Let's make a chlorinator, put it in a box and get it out the door and we'll integrate it. We'll use third-party salespeople to go and sell this equipment for it. So, and I did see how successful the, I mean, the service business was from Avoqua and how well it did in, in the US, whether they could have rolled that out globally, that's another story. But um, there's definitely some organisations that, that have done that and you normally typically find that if you can provide the service, um, to support your product, then that's a, a far deeper and richer um, experience for the end user as well. But they know that, okay, we're going to put this bit of kit in, but it's also going to be looked after. And I just pay X service provider a fee and they maintain it. And the alarms and alerts come back to their, their, their control room and say, okay, this site needs to be swapped out or we need to go and do some servicing and maintenance here. So definitely, I believe, Companies that produce equipment are going to need to pivot and have either a strong service team or an alliance with integrators and service providers to support their equipment. Yeah, that's my thinking as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're in for quite a change, both in the perception of the client in terms of buying it, the model in which it's delivered, and then the model very much of how it's maintained. I think we're moving away from a commodity-driven market um, in just the asset into it's a it's a commodity service, mm. and you, you're going to have to hit performance, but you know performance benchmarks before they actually pay you. So if you don't maintain it and you don't keep it up to speed, and the data, the quality of the data drops away below a certain parameter, 
percentage, I should say, uh, then you won't get paid. So there's going to be yep. you know a lot more pressure put on the supply chain. Yeah, yeah, and I believe yeah, the organisations and companies that can provide that level of service are going to be the winners moving forward. Yeah, you know, I mean our automation business is is definitely built up on on that service provision and making sure that our customers' skater systems have got maximum uptime, um, and that's what you know, I mean. Is, is growing our business. And then we're certainly going to be taking that into the, the smart utilities and smart water side of the business is the fact that we're having a service team that will be able to support what we put out in the, um, in the marketplace. And, you know, I mean, the customers, outsourcing is just, you, you, know, you talk, look at some organisations these days and it's so, so lean. They don't, what they would have had a service workshop. They would have had electrical workshop of fitters and they would have had mechanical workshop there, a lot of that's just outsourced now. And even if you want to bring new technology to an organisation, the second or third question will be, well, where do I go to get support? And how is this support? Adam, you mentioned it at sort of the beginning of this conversation about the, the role that the regulator plays in Australia and that it was more in reference to um, overflows. Um, but Gary and I have actually spoken about this in the past in the, in the, in the role that the regulator plays more generally, um, particularly in the rollout of smart water systems. So could you just sort of talk us through how it works in Australia? You know, do you have examples where the regulator has pushed innovations, you know, more than having other companies? Yeah, um, innovation in Australia has been driven by a lot of um, I wouldn't say a lot, but you know, when we've got the Australian Water Association, um, we've got a number of you know, I mean, different bodies that are championing innovation. We've got the Australian Drinking Water Guidelines, and what they are is they're a set of guidelines, and you know, and that's how uh, utilities should operate their networks. Uh, um, but yeah, innovation really, I suppose, in Australia comes from a we're a long way from any other part in the world, so we tend to do a lot of stuff of our own volition and the tyranny of distance, you know, I mean, that the networks that we look after. So innovation is sort of normally driven in Australia by, um, you know, I mean, internally within organisations, a lot of water utilities, will, the larger water utilities will have their own innovation teams and innovation budgets to bring on board new technologies. And typically Australia does look at the UK a fair bit for uh, what happens in technology because we know... UK's got a regulator. And you know, I mean, if you do something, you can get some massive fines. And we've seen that in the in the press and on LinkedIn recently. So that culture of innovation is in Australia's, I think, been intrinsically internal and not been typically driven via a, a government regulator. It's it's been driven by our own utilities themselves. And you know, I mean, it's very good to see what the utilities do in Australia, whether that be large utilities and even some of the small ones are, 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 do drive innovation um, quite well. And, and we've got a group called um, YR in Australia, with, which is active through Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, and that has operator involvement. So the operations people that are out there on the coalface, so to say, day to day, um, are coming up with innovation just through the mother of necessity. So, yeah, it's not innovation in Australia has really been driven yeah, I mean, internally within our own industry, it's not really driven from a, from a regulator standpoint. Yeah, we've got the EPA, which will hand out fines if you've got spillages and those sorts of things, and they're sort of 
uh, ways that you know, I mean people don't want to get fined. So you're gonna you're gonna change your behaviours around that. But typically, I see innovation is driven is industry driven in Australia, and that's just my personal opinion. Anyway, I could be very different. Could be very wrong. <laughs> I mean, are you seeing, I mean, we're seeing the things change with the regulator in the UK in the recent AMP. Um, there's a greater emphasis on the customer experience. I think that utilities, you know, have the model of a utility historically is to just meet compliance. As long as you meet the compliance, that's it. So as a business, the behavior is reactive, you know, to an act, at something happening. Oh, right. Well, we need to make sure that we are compliant. And what we're now seeing is an emphasis being pushed on going beyond compliance. So a water company should be thinking more, not just about meeting a target. It should be about exceeding a target and a customer's whole, the whole view that a customer has about the quality and the service they get. Um, they should be thinking about that because if we, if we don't think like that, the perception, the value of water comes down, in my opinion, it becomes diminished even greater and if that happens, that's a slippery slope because customers will then say, well, I'm not paying. Uh, so water companies need to change their behavior. They need to change that business model. I think just to jump in as well, Adam, the, the points you raised and mentioned there were quite similar to what Gary and I discussed. It was on a different podcast, um, but very similar points. Um, so I suppose just to, just to start to sort of wrap this up, where do you see the future of wastewater and the sewer networks? What do you see as the main sort of next steps, challenges, and then, like I say, the sort of future of it? Yeah, you're right. I was going to say, but my sort of take on it these days is people are going to want to understand what the load is coming into the plant too. What are they going to do? What are they dealing with? That's, I mean people tipping hydrocarbons down sewer networks. I mean, even having certain um, industries that would produce a high level of BOD, I mean, how do we manage that? Um, we sort of got to look at, um, yeah, understanding, it is almost like sewer water quality is the way I was sort of trying to frame it, is understanding what what's going on in that network, what do we need to do to treat it? And, yeah, I mean, what... What plants do we need to handle this? Um, you know, whether it be future expansion or, or even change in process design within wastewater plants, just to by, by understanding your incoming um, effluent. Yeah, um, for me, it's probably a bit more of a a view based, a narrow view based upon where I am, the space I'm in at the moment, and the organisation. But for us, you know, we're seeing that this is a market we need to be in. Um, Adam used the phrase sewer water quality, very much a case for us. Um, certainly from an ATI perspective, we can measure certain prosaic measurements that are going on in a sewer. We can see things like septicity, which we talked talked on earlier. We can see the onset of septicity. Um, our technology lends us to also measure uh, H2S in, in, as an odour. Um, because that's where you've got public health risk or not risk. It's a nuisance. So we can measure that. But we're working with, you know, our sister, our sister companies, SCAN, that can do these more comprehensive measurements of BOD loading. And I can see for us particularly uh, a sort of modular solution where we're dealing in the extremities 
with um, just septicity, ORP, things like that, odor control. And as you get closer to the works and you, you're more concerned about the loading capacity that's getting into that works, you're going to want a better, bigger fingerprint. You're going to want to know what the BOD is and things like that. So I can see what we're doing. Well, I, when I say I see, I know what we're doing. We're putting together offers of a modular systems that water companies can build build upon and build out depending on the complexity and, and, and expense that they want to cover. So that's where it is for us. Perfect. Well, I think that's a, a pretty good place to, to end today. So I um, just want to say thank you very much to Adam for joining us all the way from Australia. Stay safe. I hope uh, everything opens up in Australia sooner rather than later. And uh, yeah, Harry, thank you. always a pleasure. Uh, we'll talk soon. Yep, see you soon. Cheers, guys. Take care. Bye.